our call to worship this morning from Psalm chapter 36, verses 5, 6, and 7. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 15 this morning. If you are using a pew Bible this morning, that will be on page 853. 853. As we begin our time in God's word, would you bow with me? God, prepare our hearts to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own. That hearing, we may obey your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. When you look at a cross, what do you think about? What do you see it as? Do you see it as glorious? Or do you see it as horrific? The symbol of the cross is in our day and age so commonplace that its usage or its purpose has nearly fallen out of societal consciousness. The cross was an instrument of death. The cross was used for torture. The cross involved excruciating pain. And excruciating is the right word there. In fact, the word excruciating comes from the word crucify. That middle part of the word, crux, meaning cross. We see crosses all around. Some of you might be wearing a cross even this morning. In a world where there is violence, and there are depictions of violence all around us, may God prevent us from ever becoming desensitized to the reality of what the crucifixion was. And this is exactly what our writer Mark addresses in verses 21 through 32. For some context, Jesus has been arrested. He has been brought before the high priest. He has been brought before Pilate and Herod. He has been sentenced to death. He has been scourged. And we pick it up now here in the middle of chapter 5. As the soldiers lead Jesus out to be crucified. In our passage this morning we'll see a description of Jesus' way of sorrows, or what some have called the Via Della Rosa. And this passage can be summarized by two phrases that come from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. That Jesus endured the cross, and he despised the shame. Mark begins the description of these events in verse 21. Hear it again. And they compelled a pass passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, who, to carry his cross. 
and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus actually did start out carrying his cross. Mark does not tell us that, but John does. It says he went out bearing his own cross. It was customary for the condemned to carry his own cross. And when we hear that word cross, it, in this case, it actually was only the horizontal beam that Jesus was carrying. A beam that is said to have weighed somewhere around 100 pounds. And you see it, the crucified Jesus carrying wood on his back. There's a story in the, in the book of Genesis where Abraham is told to sacrifice his son Isaac. And as they go, the son, Isaac, carries the wood for the altar. Even in the book of Genesis, we're seeing these glimpses of what's pointing us forward to these events that are coming to be, the fulfillment thereof. Isaac carrying the wood is Jesus carrying the cross. This was intended, this event. Jesus, due to his physical condition, his weakness, could not continue carrying, so they grab a man, a passerby, he's called, a pilgrim, a Passover pilgrim, someone who is in Jerusalem for the Passover. His name is Simon, and they compel him, or they impress him into service, or they force him to carry the cross for Jesus. As they continue through the streets of the city, it's said that, that this march would have taken the longest route possible to Golgotha so that as many as possible in the city could see, could see what would happen to those who dare to trespass against Rome. What, does the, what is the consequence for crime against Rome? Well, eventually they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Now, sometimes you've heard of this place called Calvary. You've, call, you've heard it called uh, you've heard it called Calvary, which comes from the Latin Bible for the Latin word for skull, calva. Now it's uncertain exactly where this place was, but we do know that it was outside the city. Hebrews tells us that that Jesus went outside the gate to be crucified, and as we read through this narrative, we find that it was in a, on a public uh, in a public highway where where people who passed by could see Jesus. Well, once there, verse 23 tells us that they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Uh, the, the, the wine mixed with myrrh was, was meant to deaden the senses, to uh, kind of take away some of the pain. But here we see Jesus refusing to take it. Jesus did not take the easy way out here. With all his faculties that he had left, with all his senses that he had, he endured the pain of the crucifixion. We also see here in verse 23 the first reference to an Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled in this passage. That prophecy comes from Psalm chapter 69, verse 21. For my thirst they gave me sour drink, sour wine to drink. Now, this is one of at least four prophecies found here in just these verses in Mark. And we want to note this uh, this morning not because, uh, not, not as a side issue, it's not a side issue. Uh, noting that what, what prophecies are being fulfilled helps us to recognize that these things were happening according to the divine appointment of God. 
They were happening, events planned from eternity past, prophesied hundreds of years in advance and fulfilled in and through the person and the work of Jesus. What do we conclude? That what God has said, God will do. That was true then, it's true today. So if the prophecies concerning Jesus' coming and his death are fulfilled literally, which they are, and we're reading it in, in, uh, as Mark describes it, we can also understand that the prophecies concerning his eminent return and coming kingdom will be fulfilled literally. It's a good word. It's a good word for us to see how God is fulfilling his word. Verse 24 tells us that Jesus was crucified on the cross and Follow along in verse 24. And and they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. It was the third hour, which means it was 9 a.m. when they put Jesus on the cross and the soldiers cast lots or they gambled for his clothing, which again is another fulfillment of scripture. In fact, it was done in order that scripture might be fulfilled. Mark, as well as the other gospel writers, simply say they crucified him. And Mark does not give us a description of crucifixion here. And one of the reasons for that is the Roman readers would have known what crucifixion was. He wouldn't need to to describe it for them. They, They would have known all too well. They would have seen it. They would have heard of it. Another commentator suggests that the emphasis here was not so much on the suffering, but on the sufferer. But for us, crucifixion is not commonplace for us. It's not something that any of us have witnessed. It's not a practice that we know very much about. It is foreign to us. And in our ignorance, we can have an inaccurate view of of the horrors of what happened. Cicero called crucifixion the cruelest, most hideous punishment possible. The Expositor's Bible Commentary offers this description. Simon is ordered to place the crossbeam on the ground and Jesus is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. A soldier feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist, deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and movement. The cross then is lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down, the more weight on the nails in the wrists, excruciating, firing... uh, Let me try that again. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrist, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The the nails in the wrist are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the the nerves between the metatarsal bones of his feet. At this point, another phenomenon starts. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. 
With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Occasionally, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rendering cramps, intermittent partial asphyxia, asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain deep in his chest as the sac outside of the heart slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It's now almost over. The loss of Tissue fluids reaches a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are now making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The, blood of Je- the, blo- the body of Jesus is now at the point of death, and he can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissue. His mission of atonement has been complete. Finally, he can allow his body to die. This is crucifixion. This is what Jesus had to endure for your sin, for my sin, as a payment for sin. This is what sin required. Lest we ever consider minimizing sin, look to the cross. Lest we ever think it's trivial, Lest we ever think it's optional. Lest we ever think that somehow it's not that big of a deal. This is what sin required. It required death. It required bloodshed. It required suffering and sacrifice. It required crucifixion. In order for there to be atonement, in order for there to be forgiveness, in order for there to be salvation, Christ had to die. And as he was crucified, we know that there was a charge against him written on a sign that hung above his head. Verse 26 says, in the description of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. We're told in John's gospel that Pilate wrote out this, um, this accusation in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And the point would be that, that Everybody can read it. Nobody would look at that and say, I can't read what that's saying. He burned in three different languages. Everybody could know why it was that Jesus was being crucified, at least according to Rome and the religious leaders. This was Pilate's justification for the sentence of death. Jesus was treated, he was treated as a rebel. He he was treated as an enemy of Rome, worthy of punishment, equal to the other insurrectionists. But was it true? Was what Pilate wrote true? It was truer than Pilate even knew. Think with me back to when Jesus was born and the wise men came and they inquired about this Jesus. What did they say? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? What did the crowd cry out 
on that Palm Sunday, John chapter 12, verse 13, Hosanna, blessed he is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And what had Jesus said to Pilate just earlier when he was asked about this accusation? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, John 18. If my kingdom was of this world, my, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And what will be the name written on the robe and on the thigh of the one who's called Faithful and True, who's coming again riding on a white horse. What is that name? King of kings and Lord of lords. He is, in fact, the king. He is more of a king than those Jews understood. He was more of a king than Pilate could ever believe. He's more of a king than those who reject him today even know. Let us be clear, we do not make him king. Sometimes you might hear that language. Make Jesus Lord of your life or make him king. You, we don't make him anything. He is king. He is Lord. We merely recognize that he is. And if he is king, and he is, then he deserves, he deserves our complete devotion, our full allegiance. Philippians tells us that one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. That day is coming. That does not mean everyone will be saved. That means everyone will recognize who he is. They'll recognize the truth that he is, in fact, the king. But those who refuse to see him as king, those who will reject him as their Lord, will be judged. This charge from Pilate was meant to justify. Justify his actions. But inadvertently, it spoke truth that all people could read. They could all read it. But who would ever believe it? Well, Mark continues the scene. And we find out that Jesus was not the only one crucified. Verse 27. And with him were crucified two robbers, one on the left and one on the right. Now, Mark refers to these men as, as robbers, which fulfills Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, that tells us that the Messiah would be numbered among the transgressors. But secondly, by calling them robbers, he's putting him in connection with another robber that we've learned about already named Barabbas. And we remember that Barabbas was in fact a rebel against Rome, justly imprisoned. And these men may we don't know for certain, but may have been with Barabbas in the insurrection. And as we noted last week, Jesus, the innocent, took the place of the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is substitution. And as Jesus was the substitute for Barabbas, he is our substitute as well. You see, Jesus endured the cross, the, the wrath of God, the punishment of sin that you and I deserved. He took our place. He took our death so that in him or through him, we could have new life. 
Well, not only did Jesus endure the pain of the cross, but he despised the shame. We've already seen shame in the first several verses. The shame of scourging, the shame of of carrying a cross, the shame of being stripped and exposed, the the shame of being hanged on a cross. The, The cross was shameful. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, quoting the Old Testament, it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. But in addition to this shaming, he, he, he publicly was derided, mocked, and reviled. But nothing would stop Jesus. He despised the shame. He continued to be faithful. Mark describes this in verse 29 and 30 where we first see that Jesus was derided by those who passed by. They, they They were wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Again, another fulfillment from Psalm chapter 23. Jesus appeared to these who passed by as a helpless victim, a a, a defeated blasphemer, one who made claims but could not fulfill them, one who claimed to save but even could not save himself. In their minds, he could not do what he said that he would do, so they derided him. They slandered him. But they were not alone. Look at verse 31 and 2. Jesus was mocked by those, um, those who were the chief priests and the scribes. They came and mocked him, saying to one another, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the king, the, the, the Christ, the king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Here we see the, the chief priests and the scribes were also present at the crucifixion of Jesus to see that the, the fulfillment or the goal of what they had set out to do, and that was have Jesus killed. As with those who passed by, these religious leaders mocked Jesus, and they put him to a test. You see it in both, both situations. They both say the same thing. Come down off the cross. What are they saying? Prove it. You say you're Jesus. You say you're the Christ. You say you're the king of, of, the, of, of the Jews. Prove it. If you come off the cross, then, then we'll believe. Or so they said. Yet here's the irony. In order that he might save others, he could not save himself. Do you see that? Him coming off the cross would prove nothing. It would, it, would, it would mean nothing. It would mean that atonement hadn't been fulfilled. It would mean that there was no salvation for me or you or for the rest of the world. If he were to save himself, no one else could be saved. Jesus had to die. He had to die. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die in order to absorb the wrath of God. The wrath of God that is against you and me, against all sinners. Jesus' death took the wrath of God upon himself instead of upon you and I. The truth is that these men had heard. They had seen Jesus already. And their unbelief had blinded their eyes to see him for who he really is the true Messiah. And so then their test was, was disingenuous at best. They had no interest in believing, only in mocking. But as we remember the, the gospel narrative, we remember that this was not the first time that Jesus was tested. 
We can go all the way back to early on in Jesus' public ministry when Jesus is taken by the Spirit into the wilderness and he endures the temptation of Satan there. Three times Satan tempts him or tests him. And three times he resists those temptations with Scripture. Luke records the third temptation that Jesus says to Satan, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Luke chapter 4, verse 13, the very next verse, the the temptations are ended, and this is what Luke records. And then when the devil had ended the temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What does that tell us? It tells us that, that, that Satan wasn't done trying to get Jesus. He wasn't done trying to test Jesus or to tempt him. If he wasn't done with Jesus, guess who else he's not done with? We may resist, and we should, but be it known, Satan will look for another opportune time, and he did with Jesus. We looked at it in chapter 14 when Jesus was in the garden. This was an opportune time. Jesus is is suffering in the garden. He's suffering at the the prospect of, of what the crucifixion meant, not just physically, but bearing the spiritual weight of the sin of the world, the separation of the Father. And there, in the garden, Jesus prays, let this cup pass from me. If there's another way, Father, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was being tested in the garden. And yet he concludes that prayer with, yet not what I will, but what you will. And finally, we see here again, Jesus is tested on the cross. Come down off the cross. Come down. Avoid the the pain. That's the temptation. The temptation is to, to, to resist going to the cross, to avoid the pain, to get around the suffering, to reject the cross. That's the temptation. But Jesus endured the cross. He despised the shame, Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him. And what was that joy? Being seated at the right hand of the Father. Having accomplished the will of God. Having made a way for sinners to be saved for the glory of God and for the good of people. The way of Jesus has always been suffering now, glory to come. It was true for Jesus, and for any who would follow Jesus, it's true for you too. All who who desire to live godly in this life will experience suffering, will experience persecution if you're actually following Jesus. Suffering now, glory later. Jesus shows us how to persevere. Well, Mark concludes this section by stating a third group. Jesus was reviled by those who were crucified with him. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him, verse 32 actually says. We remember verse 27 says that there was two robbers, one crucified on his right and one on his left. Those who were crucified with Jesus joined in the mockery. They, 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 they took part on it too. You got the pastors, the passerby people, you got the, the religious leaders, and now the criminals are mocking Jesus also. Luke's gospel actually, though, tells us that before any of the mocking began, Jesus prayed this familiar prayer 
in Luke chapter 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Before those people passing by were wagging their heads at him, before the chief priests got together and, and mocked him, before even any of these criminals said a word, Jesus had already forgiven them. Jesus was not vindictive, nor he was combative to their ridicule. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There's something here for us, isn't there? Maybe you can relate with being ridiculed. Maybe you can relate with being mocked for following Jesus. No one, no one appreciates being disparaged. But here, Jesus models godliness. He models the, the kind of response to not respond in kind, but rather, in the words of 1 Peter 2, 24, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. What does that mean? It means that he trusted that God knows what's going on, that the wrongs will be made right, that injustice will be dealt with one day. God will sort it out in the end. The judgment of God is all that really matters, not the judgment of men. Someone may agree with you, they may not agree with you. They may mock you for your theology, they may not mock you for the, your theology. The only thing that matters is what does God say about you? Are you entrusting yourself to him who judges justly? Well, Jesus certainly did, and he endured the cross. He despised the shame, even when he was accused, even when he was mocked, he remained faithful. But we also find that not everyone joined in the mockery. Again, in Luke's gospel, he gives a further description of Jesus on the cross with the two criminals. In Luke chapter 23, verse 39, we read this. One of the criminals were hanged, who were hanged railed at him saying, you are not the, are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Okay, so that's one of them. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus said to the man, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. While one of the criminals railed against Jesus, the other asked Jesus to remember him. This scene provides a helpful picture of truths about salvation. There's a pastor in Philadelphia named Dr. Donald Barnhouse. He, he uh, recounts this exchange that he had with a man asking about salvation. And he illustrated what Jesus did on the cross for sinners with three crosses depicted in this story. 
He drew, first drew three crosses, picturing the cross of Jesus and the two criminals. Secondly, he wrote underneath the two outer crosses in. And under the middle cross, he wrote not in. He asked the man, do you understand what that means? And he went on to explain to the man that for the two criminals, sin was in them. They were sinners. But the man in the middle was not. There was no sin in him. He was not a sinner. He was perfect. He was righteous. He was the spotless lamb of God. Next, he wrote over one of the crosses on, and he asked the man if he understood. The man did not. The pastor went on to explain that the criminal, the criminals had sin on them. This criminal had sin on him, not only in him, but on him, meaning he was enduring the punishment of sin upon himself. He further explained to the man, have you ever, uh, or asked the man, have you ever had a, a traffic violation, a traffic stop? I'm not asking you that this morning, but if, 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 if you might relate, maybe. And th- this guy said, yes. And the guy said, did you receive a, a ticket? And he said, no. He said, so, so here's the deal. You have sin in you. You, you violated. You violated the law. But you do not have sin on you. you you're not bearing the, the penalty of that sin. These men were receiving the penalty for their sin. But then he wrote on, not over the other man's cross, but over the cross in the middle. And he explained because of the second criminal's faith in Jesus, the penalty of his sin now rested on Jesus and not on himself. Jesus would pay the penalty for his sin. The pastor concluded by asking the man, which are you? And we extend the question this morning to you all as well. Which cross are you? Which person are you? Are are you bearing the penalty of your sin, or, or is Jesus bearing the penalty for you? You see, this is why Jesus was crucified, not because of some supposed crime against Rome, but because of our sin against a holy God. He died to take our place. He died so that the penalty of the sin in us would be placed on him instead of on us. There's only two ways of dealing with sin. Either we pay for it or Jesus pays for it. That is the only way sin is dealt with. And Jesus came and he died and he was crucified in order that the sin in us would be placed on him instead of on us. I hope you heard that this morning. It is through faith in Christ that our sin is paid for by Jesus. And his righteousness is then applied to us. And as it is, we are reconciled to God. We are accepted in the beloved. We're made at peace with God. We're brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, 1 Peter, he himself bore our sins in the body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Theologian J.C. Ryle writes, Jesus became a curse so that the curse we deserved would be removed. He was numbered among sinners so that we would escape the judgment of God upon sin. 
Crucifixion is a heavy topic. Talking about death, the death of Jesus, the weight of our sin is, quite frankly, a heavy subject. And we could leave this passage saddened by our sin, saddened by the suffering and death that Jesus had to experience. And yet, we must see that this was a sovereign suffering for our salvation, without which there would be no salvation. And so we do not leave this passage with only sorrow and only sadness. No, we leave this passage with gratitude that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. That God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We leave this passage with a compulsion to live for the one who suffered for us. It is in light of this love, this love of Christ, that we are motivated to live for Christ. We'll end with these words from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen as I read. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The crucifixion tells us that God loves us. And it is in response to the love of God that we then live for God. It's not to get God to love us. God moved when we didn't love him. We only love because he loved us first. But we do love that is the right response. It is not to gain God's favor. It is because we have received God's favor. And so may this week, may we go out from here in response to the great gift of God, the work of Jesus on our behalf, something that we could not deserve. Unmerited and unmeritable grace. And may we live for the one who died for us. And may God help us. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for your help. We recognize this morning that our sins are many, but your mercy is more. And I pray this morning for those with us who have yet to come to Christ, who maybe for the first time or maybe for the 50th time are hearing today of what Christ did to save sinners. Father, I would ask that your spirit might convict each heart today. That those who sit here this morning know that they're in sin, they recognize that they're a sinner, would, would understand that the penalty of their sin is upon them, that they will bear the, the full punishment and wrath of God upon their sin. That is what is required apart from Christ. And yet, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come to be our substitute, to stand in our place, to take upon himself our penalty so that we might have life.
and receiving such life, receiving such kindness, we're led to repent, to believe, and to follow. God, may that be the response of all of us today. For those who have yet to repent, to repent and believe. For those who have, to follow fully in faith as we seek to honor you with our life. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the salvation that you have provided. We pray now that you would save sinners and that your people would follow you in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh God, you raise-